Welcome to the Dave Chang Show on the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. This is Volume 4 of the Pre-Opening Diaries. If you haven't listened to Volumes 1 to 3, check it out on however you listen to podcasts. It's right there, and I think you'll enjoy them. We recorded this episode about three months into the opening. I had just come back from the Olympics, and I was getting situated again. The restaurant was just getting reviewed. National critics and local critics had reviewed us, so we were gearing up for the critic review process, and that's a very scary, terrifying time. But what was most difficult about this period was trying to get that momentum from the pre-opening and pushing it towards the future. You're like constantly improving and getting better and better, and that's hard because everyone's working so much. And we're also talking about actual menu items and the actual understanding of a restaurant. And I think for me, the most interesting part about this podcast is when I'm trying to say, trust me, or just listen to me. And it's not for me telling the person that I know what I'm talking about. For instance, I just came back from Toronto when we're reopening up the third floor of a restaurant there. And I've given instructions to the chef Paula to do things out of her comfort zone. And That might necessarily be like fancy stuff. I wanted her to embrace some of her Colombian roots and to make some soups that are really representative of how she grew up. The fact is, is like these soups really look rustic and humble and they don't look like fanciness. And I was like, next time I'm back in town, I really want to see the progress on this. So we did the tasting this week and when it was all done and everything was delicious, I'm very excited about what's happening. She omitted many of the things that sort of I was asking for. And it wasn't for the fact that like she didn't want to do it. She was afraid that if she did it, it was not going to be cool. And I don't want to speak on her behalf, but it's not necessarily cool. It was the fact that like, hey, like you cannot edit this idea just because you think it doesn't work doesn't mean that you shouldn't physically make it. And We sort of talk about in this pod, I'm positive this creative process of a dish can be uh, applied to so many different fields, and I'm sure we're going to elaborate it more and more, but we touch upon it, and I found that this is the most interesting part of the podcast for me, was encouraging myself and encouraging the staff around me to make mistakes and not just edit it in your head. Hopefully, you get what I'm talking about. You know, I really appreciate you guys listening to um, the previous volumes, and um, I'll stop talking now and let you listen to volume four. This is the fourth podcast about the opening of the Major Domo restaurant in LA. Like two months have passed since the last one. I really wanted to keep up to date on everything that's been happening, but a lot of things have happened since then. Yeah. Well, the last time we left it, you were basically having not a nervous breakdown, but you were very tense about you were at a really dangerous point with your restaurant where you hadn't totally figured out the menu yet. You knew you had this Olympics trip coming. You knew you had a Netflix show coming and you were just tense. It was all happening at the same time. And, you know, the funny thing is, in retrospect, the menu that we started to serve and now serving is essentially the same menu that we whiteboarded out like nine months ago. And that's what's like the irony of the whole thing is like, I put myself and the whole team through this terrible process of like, it's all going to be crappy. It's all going to fail, but it wound up being exactly what we were aiming for. So you second guess something that you ended up doing anyway, and you were right nine months ago. (laughs) Yeah. It's just part of that was, again, 
I think it was like building plays for a sports team, but you can't execute them. You know, that's something you can execute when the team has like better chemistry. And, and that's where we're at right now. I think after a couple months, we have a really great nucleus, really great team. And that wasn't the case two months ago, right? I was really nervous because when you open up a restaurant, at least for myself, there's this honeymoon period before you open up when construction's still being done that you think that anything can be possible. That's like the best part of a restaurant. Where the like, no ceiling. It's like having an NBA team. Yeah. It's like, oh, we signed all yeah. these players. This is going to be amazing. Great. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. It's like the Washington Redskins preseason. Like, when you trade three first rounders yeah. for Odell Beckham. You're feeling great. You're feeling <laughs> exactly. great. You're like, yeah, Odell. this is going to like cure all the problems of the team. And anything seems possible. And then when you start to move into the restaurant, and when we moved into the restaurant, so Roy Choi let us work out of the line for like two months. And then when we finally moved in, we were still behind schedule. This restaurant was probably like six, seven months behind schedule. And there was only like five of us. It was myself, Debbie, Jude, Mark, and Christine, Richard, and David, some of the FOH side. But we had a small nucleus, and that's the only thing I felt comfortable about. Well, why don't you explain the jobs of the small nucleus just quickly? Christine's the manager. Christine's the manager. Mark's your lead chef. Mark's the CDC, chef de cuisine. Jude is the executive chef. David is beverage, wine. Richard is also like beverage, wine. So that's your inner circle. That's the inner circle. And and the one thing that I wanted to do differently, while I didn't have confidence about the menu and I didn't know exactly when we were going to open I up, had confidence. You did. I didn't. You told me it was meat and noodles. I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> that's what I, <laughs> I mean, we made it more difficult on ourselves, but for then the state I was in mentally, it just seemed like nothing was going to work. But the only positive I felt was, I knew we had a good team, a good core group of people. Yeah. And part of that was we had done a series of dinners. We did three dinners at different people's homes. We talked about that. We did talk about that. That proved to be, I think, super important because it allowed us to see how people made decisions under pressure. And we worked together at the Line Hotel for over two months. Every day, just game planning stuff. It was scheduled. It was regimented. And it was like boot camp for us. And almost everything that we came up with that time never materialized to anything. That's yeah. not the point. The point is simply, hey, like, I know about you. I know your birthday. I know who you're dating. I know your likes and dislikes. And it's building chemistry. And that to me was the most essential element to our success was building the right DNA, the right culture about accountability, transparency, and integrity. By the way, you could be talking about more than just a restaurant right now. Right. Because I feel the same way about The Ringer with my inner circle. It's building you a team. You hit a point and it's just like, all right, we're humming now. That's it. It's building an organization and, and it gets more complex, but you got to start somewhere. And yeah. for all of my troubles about where we were going, that's something that I felt comfortable with, but I still didn't know. And it was only until we opened up did I see where we could go. And we tried to do things very differently when we opened up. and. You know, it's funny, like when we came up with that menu that first day, that first week of friends and family, we just didn't know. We didn't know about the Bing section, how it was going to be executed, which are these flatbreads that we're making that are Chinese. They're delicious. We didn't know about our pasta program, the noodles. So many unknowns that didn't work at all. But like, for whatever reason, like they sort of all gelled together. And when we did friends and family, 
it all sort of came together. And I think we were all shocked. It was the easily the smoothest friends and family that I've ever been associated with. Well, explain friends and families how many days. We did three days of yeah. friends and family, and maybe four. And that's like preseason. It's like exhibition. I somehow was there twice. Yes. <laughs> Bill, Bill has become our most loyal, loyal uh, I've been there customer. seven times. <laughs> it's embarrassing. But like the thing that I wanted to do differently was how we treated all the hourly staff, both front of the house and back of the house. Front of the house, all the servers and bussers and bartenders and the BOH, back of the house, are the cooks. And we just overloaded everyone with so much information. But I think as I turn 40 and I've been in this business now some time, I think finally I, ha- I have better maturity to execute some of the ideas that I've always wanted. A lot of that happens because I have people that I can trust. So right off the bat, we wanted to let people know our expectations of them as a cook. It's from how you label something to how you take notes down to how you wrap stuff in plastic, how you organize. And it dawned on me that like all these things happen in piecemeal in a normal restaurant. But we wanted to set the code and the benchmark right off the bat that, hey, we're going to falter. We're not going to always be our best, but we have to remind ourselves that even at our worst day, we need to like hold ourselves accountable to make all these small things right. And it may not make any sense to the listener, but basically when you are opening a restaurant, at least how I've done it, someone new comes in, even though you have established team and culture, And you just expect them to assimilate. You don't explain to them, hey, this is how we do it here. Right. Right. You just be like, hey, they're going to sink or swim. And while that works and can be effective, I think it's just also very hard to figure out. And we have a really strong group of cooks. In over two months, we've only lost two. Because you killed them? No. I've thought about it sometimes. One was literally um, a death in the family. And another one was, I can't. Talk about just didn't because, work. no, they're going to come back. Okay, it's just so you stabbed them, but they're recovered. <laughs> <laughs> now they're they're going to come back in April. They just had to take care of something. So you have not had staff turmoil, which is good. Almost no staff turnover. We haven't even mentioned yet that the restaurant is like the biggest success in like five or six years in LA. <laughs> kind of buried the lead on that one, I guess. Yeah. Well, let's go backwards though. Yeah. Because the last time you did this, you didn't know what was on the menu, and you were really nervous about stuff, but you also couldn't tell us stuff. Because I still didn't know, right? I didn't know if you were hiding something or you no, genuinely, I genuinely didn't know. I genuinely didn't know. But when you look back, what was the biggest fork in the road for you? How do you explain what we're doing? Our food, I felt, had so much narrative and so much explaining that I was worried that it would be lost in it trying to be, you know, while we're not trying to be pretentious, I thought the food and the explaining of it could easily become that. So explaining like... People know, like, I'm going to a Thai restaurant. I'm going to an Asian fusion restaurant. You felt like you didn't have the two words. Well, even in terms of the dishes that we were trying to do, I made that mistake in the past of trying to explain and being sometimes too blunt or too verbose or whatever. Like, I didn't know what angle to play. Secondly, we're in Los Angeles. It turned out you had the angle. It was you. Yeah. It was like, this is David Chang's restaurant. No, cool. no, no. People are like, all right, great. It's, it's, that doesn't work that, so much anymore. That, that's really how it worked though. No. People are like, I trust this guy. I've heard he's good. I'm going to go. And then the food was really but good. But I think part of that was having the confidence to trust myself because in the years past, I think I've lost a lot of that confidence. Yeah. Well, but a lot of the stuff you're doing was in New York where people knew who you were. So you couldn't trade on your name as much anymore. And it had to be like, what's his next big thing? What's he doing now? Whereas here, it's like, David Chang's here. Great. Well, we oh, spoke, he's going to serve us food. Well, part of my unease about that was something that we've spoken about before. 
I didn't want us to be the Atlanta Falcons versus the Patriots two Super Bowls ago. Yeah. Where I love you that can analogy. become, <laughs> where you, you know, it's hard to be able to make decisions when you have the lead. Like you can be paralyzed by it. And that's a weird place to be when you have such a big lead that that's why I call it hubris, right? Like you don't even understand why you got there, but you believe in the lead instead of like believing in yourself. And then you sort of lose your way a little bit. And I wouldn't say that necessarily happened that was to us. That was being 2016. But keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, you got to eat humble pie sometimes. And we spoke about that in, in the previous pods, but part of that was finding like my confidence. And it wasn't that me being confident in me and something that I've spoken about internally before. It was like, hey, I'm going to explain to people, like, you just trust me. Like, listen to me. And I'm not saying listen to me because you got to listen to me. Listen to me because I actually don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. If that makes any sense. And that was part of feeling that like nausea again, where I'm not feeling comfortable about it. And so listen to me because I need your help. And I might say things that I haven't sorted out in my head yet. And you can help me get to the next level or. But more so, I don't know where we're going. Right. But listen to me, not because I have the answer, but we need to literally look at the process and just make mistakes. What I'm trying to say is like, hey, it's like we need to make adjustments at halftime. That right. kind of I got stuff. You. Not everything's going to work and, and we have to know what didn't work. And, and you move. need to like get data back and you need to look at that data and you can't just do the same thing if it didn't work before. And that's part of that process. And if you have really good people and you have right intentions, you care enough, I think tremendously good things can come out of it. But part of that is you need to be in that free fall and you need to be comfortable with that sort of not knowing what's going to happen. And while I'm comfortable with it, it's not a good feeling. A lot of people don't like working like that. Plus, you need people a little outside the fringe, like someone like me, who's like, hey, last night I was there, but you weren't there, and the mac and cheese wasn't cheesy <laughs> enough. And you're like, that's good information. Yeah. You want data. So then there was a lot of uncertainty as to what was happening, and I didn't know what was going to work. I had some ideas, but part of it was going against what is traditionally conventional wisdom. Right? Yeah. The decision that's the lowest hanging fruit or the most efficient decision is not maybe the right decision. And that's really hard to like challenge yourself. Yeah. Right. As like a sports analogy, I remember like the Super Bowl, unfortunately, this time around, the Eagles versus the Pats, when they went for it on fourth down. Yeah. I mean, listen to that audio just gives me goosebumps because I'm like, that is fucking awesome. To be able to have that. Rapport, I didn't like it as much. <laughs> because like to go for fourth down and to do that play where they're doing a pitch to the running yeah. back and they throw it to the quarterback, that's easily the dumbest decision you could possibly make. Yeah. Even if you had practiced it because it defies what you probably should do, which is kick a field goal. Yeah. And like some good things can happen out of like really untraditional thinking. And that's sort of where I want us to be at, my team to be at and the restaurant to be at. And there was all this uncertainty and I wanted us to actually like grow from that uncertainty. At that point, like anything can be possible. And it's really hard to get a group of people together to commit to not knowing what might happen. And to me, that's a feeling of total terror yeah. and excitement because that's how new stuff can happen. So that's my, what happened with the opening. My biggest fear was the location. Yeah. I like was one time we were, we were hanging out at Greater Chow before you launch and he was just like, yeah, man, I don't know about that location. He was just like super blunt, Greater Chow about it. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know if people are going to go there. And it was kind of like, dude, maybe not say that. Yeah, I was but, scared. I but mean, I, in my head, I was like, fuck, are people going to go there? And it turns out not only are people going to go there, but now it's kind of turning into a neighborhood. Well, well you know, we got to keep on pushing, right? Yeah. But 
I was really nervous about the location. And part of the reason why I chose that location, and for those that don't understand, Los Angeles is a massive city. And the further east you get, it's just a different kind of clientele for like what is traditionally seen as like a high-end dining establishment. It's just cooler, in my opinion, <laughs> than the west side. It's about four minutes past Chinatown going away from the yeah. highway. And also we're, we're in a here. place that is like neither here nor there. It's not yeah. really Chinatown. It's not really Frogtown. It's not really the east side, even though we're east. It's just in the in-between. And, and we're for in a, people on the west side, it's a hike. It's really hard for people to go to. But people in the Echo Park, Silver Lake area, it's a really good location for them. But the hope is that it's so good, people are going to be like, I'm going to drive 45 minutes to go to this place. Correct. And when I signed that lease and did that deal, that location spoke to me because it was so raw. Yeah. It is a cool location. Right. And it is near stuff. But it's just there was nothing there before you were there. But we had signed some leases in the past for restaurants, and they were places that I would never be able to have gotten before, but they were more mainstream, I would say. And just because of who I am, I'm not that person that can get the best out of myself when there's comforts around me. Yeah. Like I really need to- You need a tiny obstacle. I need a lot of obstacles. Yeah. And I'm pretty certain that I don't know if Major Domo would have been the restaurant it is today had I opened up in like Beverly Hills. Uh, I think there's something, I never really thought of it till you did this, but- when Bestie opened, how many years ago? And it was in the fucking arts district in the middle of nowhere. And it was an effort to go there. And that kind of became part of the experience. It's like, we're going to Bestia. We have to drive there. It's in a weird place. And it kind of made me want to go there more mm-hmm. versus if it was seven minutes from my house. I don't know. It's To me, when you go out to dinner, it's the experience of the whole thing. It's, how am I getting there? Well, Oh, I'm over here. But that's still like traffic and things in LA take so long to get to. That was like a concern of mine. Yeah. What I underestimated was just how awesome the people are on the east side too. Like how oh, much yeah. they support us. And like, that's just been the best. Like so many people from the east side that have just given us so much love. Chinatown itself, right? Yeah. Has really given to us and we want to make sure that we give back. But I didn't understand that. I didn't understand the restaurant dynamics yet. And when we opened up, I was certain that people weren't going to come. Even though that's not necessarily true. That's what I was telling myself. So we had to make a restaurant that was going to compel people to like be there. And my benchmark, as ridiculous as it's going to sound, was having done my homework about coming downtown, the only time people will ever be on time downtown was when they go to Dodgers games. Yeah. Right? And Which is, we should tell people, it's like, what, four minutes away? Yeah, Six minutes? Four or five, five minutes? minutes, really you close. You can see the stadium almost exactly. as you're going in. And I was like, wait a second. Like, if I think about... If I'm going to a Dodgers game and it starts at like five o'clock, that means if I'm from the West side, I got to have to like leave work at like three o'clock to get there. Yeah. And people do it all the time. Right. I'm not talking about a baseball game per se, but I'm talking about the expectations you would have to like alter your lifestyle to get to a place on time. The traffic habit. Right. And I compared that to like the only time I ate at LBE, the most famous restaurant in my opinion of the past like 50 years, I got a reservation. It was like on a Tuesday and I had to figure out how to get there. From, from New York and I had like 48 hours and I was like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to change everything in my life. So it's got to be somewhere in between where we have to create an experience that's going to be compelling enough for people to change their pattern to get there. And that's why I felt the location could be a blessing in disguise. Well, we should mention it's a beautiful restaurant. You walk in, it's nice and happy, high ceilings. Do you see the bar right away? Seems happy. You can see the chefs. There's a patio. 
when you show up, when you get dropped off on your Uber, you're not expecting it. You're like in this. No, it it's, feels it's dark. different. There's warehouses. You're like, kind of, where am I? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this place. And that's what I wanted. I want a sense of discovery. I wanted a sense of possibility. The same feelings that I was feeling about it. Yeah. That it was raw enough where we could shape it into something. And most importantly, what I wanted to do was show growth from where we've come from, New York and Toronto and Sydney, Australia. I mean, uh, all our restaurants, Washington, D.C., Vegas, they're all there and they're all great. But this was something that I wanted to build specifically for Los Angeles and have an experience where people would have fun. Yeah. Right. Like they don't know where they're going, but they're going to come in. They're going to spend their harder money and they're going to have delicious food. But I want there to be a sort of like in the air sense of excitement and fun. Well, what was cool was once you started taking reservations, those got shot in like a second. It was just done for a month. But then you started having these walk-ins and the line would start forming. When does it form? Like 4.30, 4 o'clock? Yesterday, someone showed up at 3 o'clock. Yeah. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing? This is turning into like in Austin, like those two barbecue places yeah. that the people wait for five hours. So you're basically turning the restaurant over three times. You have the well, early, the early, early one, the normal, and then the late one. So yeah, the reservations. Which is a lot of pressure on the staff. It's a lot. That's a, a lot. long, that's a long work day. It's a long work day. Thank God you don't serve restaurant. coffee. We have coffee. No, you don't, you don't advertise don't, it though. We don't advertise it though. Yes. You don't have an espresso machine. We don't have an espresso for a reason, <laughs> for good reason. <laughs> The other um, thing is, it seems like there's like five or six things that have caught on and word of mouth has spread already. And, you know, like the APL ribs and the dessert with the high shaved ice. And there's things where people are calling in now and asking you to reserve right. certain things, which is a good sign. It's a good sign. And I mean, Richard Hargrave, he is a Bev director, runs the wine. He's one of the best sommeliers in the world. We opened up Australia together and several other restaurants. I swear to God, every day we look at each other and we're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, how is this working? Yeah. So we expect it to all. Because they wanted this restaurant. They just didn't know it. I mean, it's possible, but like, I have to believe that it's not working as well. Customers are eternally dissatisfied and we need to make it better because I don't want to be the Falcons. I like that the three different things you can see it. This is how it's sad how many times I've been in this restaurant now, but like. Early is like the foodies who are like, I just want to go. I'll wait in line. I want to eat. I want to be part of this. Then the 730 range is the reservations. Mm-hmm. The people who put, we're going here. We're going six weeks from today for your birthday or whatever. And then it seems like the 930, 10 o'clock are like dates. Yeah. And, and I mean, that, it's a different that, that's vibe. That's like the wildcard LA crowd that is really unique to They're LA. cool, man. Like just a different crowd. I didn't know what to expect. But I mean, shame on me for not expecting people to be as as awesome as they have. I was telling you to move here a year ago. I know. LA was the coolest city and shit's happening here. It's just different. Everyone's like, oh, what's the difference between New York and LA? It's like, they're both amazing cities. They're just different. And it's not even the weather. It's just like, it's just different. I haven't figured out how to articulate it's it. It's different yet. in that LA is better than New York. No, 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 no. That's one of the ways it's <laughs> I, different. I don't even think as LA is like a city city. Like New York is a city. Right? Another way it's different is LA is better than New York. That's why the New York Times writes all their pissy little LA pieces. It makes it seem like LA is like this alien planet. I'm Switzerland here. One of these, (laughs) one of the weird trend in LA that's developing right now. It's like they talk about LA like it's a foreign country. It's a little different. Yeah, I know. know. (laughs) You're you're being Switzerland. I like it. But I mean, listen, I'm just trying to recall all those feelings. And it's not a singular achievement. 
if it was going to work at all, it was literally because of the team that we we're building and the hard work. And this sounds as cheesy as possible, but it's absolute truth. People work so fucking hard to explain what we were trying to do to yeah. our staff and setting a very clear example of what we we're trying to do. And not without a lot of my mistakes, right? Like try not to lose my temper. Certainly I've done it. But the difference thing is like when I've done it, I I'll give you an example. I made a mistake by telling everyone, hey, we want everyone to make mistakes, uh, right? We want everyone to make mistakes because that's how we're going to learn from it. And we want to like share in how these things were done because that's the kind of transparency we want. And I feel like in my head, that's what we've always done. And this has happened like probably three or four times where someone actually makes a mistake and it's in service. Dinner's happening and it's really intense. And I just get so mad that I can't understand why someone would make that mistake that I, I get angry and I might lose my temper or I'll try to address it later. But the problem really is, is that like, I realize like I'm a fucking hypocrite. I've told them to make a mistake. They make a mistake. And then you get mad at them. And I get mad at them. And I've been trying so hard to be more aware of how my words and actions are perceived by someone else. So the first time that happened, I apologized to the entire staff the next day. I didn't think I needed to, but like, listen, I think I made someone feel bad. And the reality was, even if it was their fault, which it wasn't, it was a team effort. Like, why the fuck was I trying to single them out? Yeah. And if anyone's going to have responsibility on that, that's 100% mine. And while I've understood that for years, it's taken me 40 years to actually like physically implement that. Yeah. Things like that, I think, build better chemistry. I've learned a lot during this whole experience because I feel like I've been there. I went to a meal at every step of the way. And it was interesting to see the things you were looking at during those different phases, right? Like the one meal we had where you made at Jimmy's house. Right. And the things you were trying to get from that dinner. And then friends and family, you were watching the staff. But then I remember I came back like the second or third time. When I came back with my kids after Zoe's soccer game, and we sat in the patio and you came and you hung with us, but you were kind of watching. And I was like, what are you looking at? And you said, I'm watching the people eating because I want to see how they're interacting with the food and the reactions they have, which I thought was really interesting. So you have to explain that because your explanation for that was cool. So I've worked a lot of my past few years in open kitchens and traditionally a lot of kitchens are closed. So over the years, I've developed just a thing of just looking at people when they eat. And yeah. I can look at someone while they're eating and still like help expedite and cook and all that stuff. But I've now trained myself, much like when you were saying, when we went to uh, the All-Star game, Yeah, I was like, I don't know what the fuck Bill's talking about. I don't know how he can see all these things. Yeah, yeah. But if you watch enough, you can pick up on things that no one else can. And I guess that's the same thing for me. I, I'm looking at something and while I can talk and do all these other things, I'm noticing things. One of the things I'm noticing is how is a customer actually enjoying the food? The benchmark is if they're eating something, you can still talk to someone. It's not good enough. Interesting. Just not, just not good enough. Or if they're like handing bites across the table, that's a well, good you, sign. You've seen it. We've all experienced it. When you eat something so good, you're like, fuck. Yeah. Or like you're having a conversation with your friend and you eat something. You're like, wait, we can't talk about this anymore. We got to eat. Yeah. Again, that's going to be a very hard bar to match, but you just are looking for facial expressions. If someone's like eyes light up or they're just like, hmm, these are all things that you want to know, especially when you're editing a menu before you launch it to the public. So I was really looking at, and I continue to look at how people eat something. You can also be sitting with us in the patio 55 feet from the kitchen and immediately know when something went wrong 
Did I almost do that? I don't remember. Of your eye. It almost <laughs> reminds me of like those moms that have seven kids that know when somebody just knocked over a glass of Coke or something. You were like, oh, I got to go. And you'd just be gone. I'd be like, what did he see? I don't even, but you, you notice things. Yeah. You're, you're trained to be looking all different ways, like a point guard almost. A little bit. I just think that's taking time. It's not a skill. And I, it just happens because that's what you do. And, and, and the truth of the matter is it's been a long time since I spent this much time in a restaurant. In one restaurant. In one restaurant. And because I've been delegating and I've been trying to, I think, be a better boss, I think only recently have I gotten a better understanding what delegating actually means. It means like- um, You're empowering. Yeah. I think I conflated the idea of empowering and like just giving someone autonomy. And before, I think I would give people autonomy and I would also not give them the freedom, right? I would give them the position, but not give them as much freedom as they need. Or very similar to what I was saying, like someone would make a mistake and then I would come down hard on them. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm becoming a, my fucking dad, right? I was like, I need to like not be this. And the best thing I can do is almost without signing again, ridiculous, like give this person my unconditional support and love, right? Where I'm going to try to make sure that they make more right decisions than wrong. And, you know, I watched the Spielberg documentary and this fucking guy took the same thing that I've been saying when like Spielberg's first mentor said like, listen, like if you come on board, I'm going to support you as much in your failure as I will in your success. And that was like a very powerful thing that I've been trying to tell myself over the years to these guys and girls. But now I'm like, I think I've gotten better at that. And I don't know how to articulate it, but I want them to not necessarily listen to me. Right. Or push back a little. Right. And in some ways, I think for me, it would be like a coach giving up play calling, but not really giving up play calling. Right. But I also don't want to just be Jason Garrett. Right. right. And I think the that, <laughs> and I think for a three, four, five year stretch, I was more Jason Garrett than I was like a better coach. We'll be right back after a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Today's Dave Chang show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them, especially those in the restaurant business. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew that there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. I would know Momofuku uses them all the time. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. I think... The restaurant is succeeding for the reasons we mentioned, and the food's really good. But asked, there's two other things that jumped out, because I've never really thought about a restaurant before, like the way I've thought about this one. One thing is it's unique. And I think, like, I'm just trying to figure out what lessons could we learn from this that could apply to other restaurants that open down the road. One thing is it's unique. It's just like, in LA, this is its own restaurant. There's no other restaurant like it. The other thing is, and I don't know how intentional this was, but it's a very communal experience to eat. Like I went with Jacoby on Saturday night, who I hadn't seen in a while, my buddy Jacoby. And we ate and we shared like half of the dishes, right? 
we get the sausage and the peppers and we're both eating that and we get the rice thing and we make it with the gloves and we had the steak, we had the same thing. Then we have dessert with two guys sharing this giant <laughs> shaved ice dessert. But I do think that matters. It makes it feel like more of a relationship to the person you're with that you're eating with. Yeah. Does that I'm, make sense? I'm, I'm actually very excited that you get that. And it does make complete sense. And I think part of that, I think, is matured and growth on my end and not just my end. I think it's everyone on the Momo side in New York that helped make this possible understood that that communal dining experience was going to be paramount to the success of this restaurant. And it's the same thing that we've always tried to do within Momofugu, but now it's like evolved. And this may not make sense, but when I lived and worked in Asia and obviously growing up in a Korean household, the idea of communal eating was something that just, that's what you did. Like no one orders their own dish. Yeah. When you go to Asia, part of that is enforced by the fact of how you eat. So much of it is small cramped spaces that you could be sitting down with another table of people you don't even know, right? And oftentimes there's that that magical moment where someone's like, hey, you want some of this? Even though I don't know you and you're a stranger. Or, you know, it's just like there's a weird icebreaker. It's like someone else is invading your space. And that can be really disconcerting to some people. But that's just the way it is for most of Asia. and. I tried to incorporate that in the communal dining experience in Momofuku. Partly is we were limited in space in New York and budget. So we're just going to have everyone sit together in cramped corridors, and that's just going to be it, right? And by doing that, that environment, that vibe is going to translate into that same feeling of community. And again, not everyone wants to eat that way. But here's why it's unique to LA, because LA is the opposite of that. Everyone's in their cars in LA. Nobody's really together. You're not on the subway. When you go out to dinner, I was like, all right, I'll have the lobster bisque and I'll have the steak. Right. And then the next person will order. And it's just, you're kind of on your own in LA, which I like because I'm an only child. But I think that's one of the reasons this restaurant works because it's like you go there, it's like, oh, I'm doing stuff with other people. Yeah. And that's, I think that's something we've always tried to do. And I think this is the newest version of it. We wanted to make a restaurant that was really good for solo diners and couples, but also great for large groups. But I also wanted to make sure that even if you're a solo diner, you could mix and match your food, right? Yeah. Because also a couple, you could just still share in something and there was something interactive about it. But when you think about how people eat in LA, you get a taco and then you go to the condiments. You go to a Korean restaurant, it's like a blitzkrieg of food. And then you have optionality, even though everyone's eating the same thing. You can still customize it. And that's something that's like super important to me was- Well, Koreans have been doing that forever. And many of our most successful dishes in other versions of Momofuku are that. And I don't think it's just LA. I think there's something like in our DNA about being able to break bread over the same thing and be able to, hey, you like eating it that way? Well, I'm going to add a little bit more chili. I want some more acid. And then we can still eat the same thing, still talk about this thing, but I still have it individualized for myself. And That was like the next for myself. Again, we're not inventing anything new, but I wanted that feeling that we got at the old noodle bar where you're just cramped, but in a different way through the food. And there's, if you're on a date, there's something romantic about it right into the point where you eat too much and then you can't have sex (laughs) at the end of the night because you're stuffed. Like, I'm sorry. Could you just drop me off? Just want to go home. (laughs) I'll take care of you tomorrow. Maybe I should have had that ninth entree. I always eat too much. You can eat small. Can we talk about like three of the signature dishes? Yeah. Because like the big hit and the one people call for is the APL ribs, 
which then I can't even, you can describe in a second, but not only do you get the ribs, but then it comes back with like this extra part where stuff got pulled off the bone and got mixed into this rice thing. So it's almost like you're doubling back with the same entree and it's absolutely delicious and people love it. They love having, what's the, the little table that gets pushed right. curbside. People love that. They love seeing the person cut the ribs and it's just a massive hit. Now, were you 100% sure that was going to be the case in January? I knew the ribs were going to be really good. What I was unsure of was the price because it's expensive. But people don't understand, well, not say people don't understand. They may not know that the short ribs we're getting are incredibly expensive. Yeah. And you might get it at a barbecue place and they're probably going to be $45 per rib for just one with nothing else, just a la carte. So I didn't know if people were going to spend that. But I also wanted to figure out if we ate the same amount of meat at a Korean barbecue restaurant, we wanted to be sort of roughly the same amount, give or yeah. take five, 10 bucks. So that's what we did. And I knew it was delicious. I just didn't know the right vehicle for it. But there's also something about when you see meat sliced in front of you, whether it's Thanksgiving turkey or whatever, there's just that like, I want that kind of feeling. Even yeah. though like, you know, you're going to eat it. There's that like anticipation of like, fuck, that's going to be good. I think there's got to be something baked in our DNA. Like that's just And you got these little sauces that come with it. But then, yeah. then all of a sudden the guy comes back with the rice. And so yeah, we slice it in front of you. We come time. back, we trim off all the meat, we chop it up and then we fold it back into the rice. So a lot of French restaurants do this. Like Pierre Gagnier is famous for doing like triptychs of food. All over the world, people do it where you drop a second dish, like a sidecar or something. It's the same feeling when you get a milkshake at a diner. Yeah. And they give you the extra milkshake. You're oh, like, yeah. Oh. Even Thank though like, I paid for that, yeah. anyway, there's oh. just, it's a great feeling. And one of the things, again, like that I've always loved was when you go to certain restaurants that I like going to in Japan or even Korea, like if you go to a place that serves raw fish in Korea, like they call it hue, they're going to break down the fish and they're going to serve it to you raw. And it was just alive. So it's a very different process and eating experience than Japanese sushi or sashimi. It's about freshness. And then- they're going to take whatever you don't eat, the bones of the fish, and they're going to make a beautiful stew called meuntang. And it's going to be spicy. And it's almost like a spicy bouillabaisse. Yeah. But you're getting the same. It's all from the same thing. It's about frugality. And it's also like, like I want you to have more, even though it's the same thing. And to me, that's like one of the best ways of being hospitable to a guest. So that adds to that whole feeling of fun, excitement, communal dining, a sense of like, we are really gracious that you're spending money with us. We want to give you everything possible for you to have like the best meal. My favorite Magic Johnson story from working with him for a year, speaking of getting a little more, he used to get these Jamba juices in the morning when we'd have the Sunday morning countdown, It'd be like nine o'clock. And he would have this guy who worked for him who'd bring the Jamba juice. And it was always this giant Jamba juice. And then this little cup. He'd be like, what's on the cup? And Magic said, I used to love getting these Jamba juices, but they would always make a little too much. And then they would throw away the rest. And I was like, well, why can't I get that too? So now he would get the little cup and this guy would bring him this giant Jamba juice. And then this little tiny shot glass <laughs> of the leftover Jamba juice for Magic Johnson. Yeah. Because it was the principle to him. It's, it's like, principle. I want all of it. If you and made that, give me all, everything I get. Yeah. So we're going to bring you these short ribs, right? That are made in... Adam Perry Lang's technique that he allowed us to use that's also cooked in a, that's Korean, but it's not, not to talk about that. 
but we slice it in front of you and we give it with all the accoutrement that you might get at a Korean barbecue restaurant and you can make your own little psalms. But then you have all the bone, you have like the stuff that you want to gnaw on. And you know what? Like we could just leave it there, but it's also hard to eat. Yeah. Right. So we're going to make it easier for you. And in the process, we're still going to give you the bones, but we're going to trim it up and all that trim, we're going to turn into something more delicious. That's just it. It's like, hey, like they know. I just think that transparency is more important than ever before in restaurants. Like you can't fucking fool anyone anymore. Well, you're also changing the menu a lot. We're changing a lot, right? I mean, I've only been there seven times so far, but (laughs) I've noticed that there's always a couple of new things. And even when Jacoby and I went the other day, you're messing with bone and fillets all of a sudden. And only reason we put a bone and fillet, not to make Bill Simmons' heads larger, we put it on because of you. Because like I was Cause, like, because you were always fascinated why I like the bone and flay. Yeah, I don't I understand like, it. I still don't understand it. <laughs> I still don't get it. Like, but like people that love fillet, they've been ordering it. Like it's been selling incredibly well. Yeah, it's really good. I just again, like it's not my favorite cut. That's all. But we it's put not my it on. You're a steak snob. <laughs> bone and fillets are good. <laughs> but that's the thing. The menu's been fun, and we've been able to incorporate like Jude, the exact chef, and he's such a great meat cooker like he cooks the best meats and we've been getting all this input from everyone so the menus like weirdly shouldn't work but it works and right now it's important to change the menu i think as much as possible simply for us yeah because we want to see what works what doesn't work and you want to give the restaurant a pulse especially now is you want to make sure that when you bake it like just because we have a good start with the culture you got to keep on feeding this thing so you want to give new challenges to different cooks. Have you thought about like using social and like if you're adding something new to the menu tonight, like- Oh, we do it. Is that an Instagram feed? Sometimes I put it on Instagram. Like yesterday- You put it on your Instagram? Yeah. It's almost like how the bands put their set lists out before the concert. Here's what- Uh, Yeah, I I actually- after the concert. It's a great idea, but sometimes like it just happens last minute. Oh. Like we didn't think we were going to serve Copa, like a a pork neck yesterday. And we're just like, screw it. We're going to do it. And pork neck, pork neck. It's really delicious. Okay. We had that conversation. We forgot about it. And then Mark Johnson was like, oh, I actually made it. And I have like several pieces of it. And we didn't find out till like five o'clock because it took like all day to cook. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like we got to put it on the menu. So no one knew. And then I just put it on Instagram, on the Instagram stories. And that was how we sort of broadcast it. So it worked. We sold out of them last night. What's been the most shockingly popular dish that you weren't expecting my god all of them um really a lot of them i didn't expect the jumek pop to sell explain what that is in 10 seconds i mean it's basically like you make rice balls basically with your own you i give mean people these little gloves that they feel like they're gonna give somebody an enema or something <laughs> yes. you put the gloves on it's rice it's seaweed it's what what else is in there a lot of um avocados in there it's like basically like poke without the fish right, right. And like, and it's people nothing get new. to people, mix it up. They get to make little rice balls. People eat it all the time when you go get like jokbao, which is like pig's feet in Korea and stuff like that. It's nothing new, but it's different. And, you know, it's an interesting form of criticism I've heard from Korean people. There are some Korean elements on the menu that we've left intentionally. And it's funny to hear the shit talking from Koreans be like, I'm not going to spend 12 bucks for that. Fuck that. Right. Well, I'm like, well, good. You don't have to order it. So... Things that I didn't think were going to work, because like we did that for you guys the first time at, yeah. at Kimmel's, and I did that as like a lark. Well, yeah, You're there like, was a bunch of people that have like never eaten this before. I think this is going to be funny just to push your buttons, and then it was a total surprise to be like, wait, all these fucking people 
love this dish the most. And it was a total throwaway dish. Yeah. But what I saw that night at Kimmel's was like, there was like a sense of wonderment and the fact that like your guys are now playing with food and it was like this childlike thing. And I'm like, oh, wait, maybe this is going to work because it's such a fucking bad idea. Yeah. And no, if you're Korean, you're more than likely not going to order it. But you know what? This restaurant isn't for everyone, right? People love like props. Yeah. Like, oh, I get to put these on. They're putting them on. Oh, do you want to mix the rice balls? It just works. And that's the thing. It's a great icebreaker. It allows you to commune again with your friends. What didn't work? What was the biggest failure that you We had a salad. <laughs> I oh. thought the salad was going to sell really well. What was the salad? It was just a giant stack of bib lettuce with a really simple vinaigrette. Great lettuce from the market, but no one. You know why? Here's my theory on that. I think people come there to eat. Yeah. It's like, I'm going, this is, I'm putting my big boy eating pants on tonight. Male or female. They're just like, I'm not having a salad tonight. I'm going all out. I was surprised at how many truffles we sold. Truffle season sort of just ended. Truffle season never ends. It does. I'm I mean, convinced okay. that's the racket of all times. We, There's a couple of restaurants that are like, it's truffle season right now. Well, it's you like, can I freeze was here them. nine months ago, it's truffle you, season. You can freeze them. Some summer truffles can be okay. It's truffle just, season like the NBA playoffs. It's like, it's truffle season on TNT. Yeah, pretty much. It's pretty, <laughs> it is. It's usually starts like late October, finishes when the beginning of spring. You know, what has been fun is you love the produce here and the fruit and the vegetables and stuff. So you actually, like I was there on Saturday and there was this weird tofu tomato dish that I hadn't seen on the menu before because you really liked the tomatoes right now. Well, some of the things we can bring back from old, but we've just never been able to do because we haven't had the produce. Cause like, you know, New York has great tomatoes too, but this one we were getting, like, it was like, um, end of February, we're getting tomatoes. I was like, what the fuck's going on? Yeah. So that's an old dish, but we've changed it. it. Everything we've done, if it does have some of its roots in older dishes, they've been updated and like, that's a dish that we put on and I thought it would sell more, but like one reason why I think it's hard to keep track of the things that sell well, other than like the, the, basics. Po- the pasta, the basics is the fact that like everything is really selling. Yeah. I mean, do you hit a danger point where you basically fill the restaurant for six, seven straight hours and especially summer's coming, you open the patio and all that stuff. Like when does a restaurant go on tilt with the staff? Well, that's a, fu- that's what's funny. I didn't understand how much it rained in LA because I've been told it never rains, but no, over the past been, two it's months- it's been an anomaly this it's year. It's rained a tremendous amount. It's about to be nice for five straight months. And then it got really cold. So I would say half our seating is outside. Yeah. And that's been a nightmare for Christine, our GM, who's just the best, and all the reservation requests to accommodate because if it rains, then you have to move people around. <laughs> and it's been really hard. And there's probably been- at least 14 services where it's rained for us. And we've had to close the outside. And when it's closed, it's like such a nice service, a nice dinner service, because it feels like we're pushing ourselves, but it's not like pandemonium. When yeah. the outside is open, it's basically, we just added another restaurant. Right. And it's really fucking hard. It's really intensely. Last night, for instance, was a Tuesday. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. I was like, it's Tuesday night. We are incredibly busy. Yeah, that's the worst night to eat in LA usually. But that's great. I'm I'm thankful, but like it's just more people make it more difficult, right? That's all. It's not that we can't handle it. It's just we need more reps of having the full restaurant open. And there's been too many days where we've been half open. So what do you feel dumbest about looking back when you were freaking out in January? I don't Or were you like, oh man, why did I why did I think that way? I should have known. I feel very good about what happened because I think that it's been 
a lot of reflection just every day about what we can do to get better. But in terms of what I could have done better, I think, I don't know. A lot of it would just be like interactions with cooks. And and I'll give you one example that I wish we could have done better than, and finished is our checklists. What's a checklist? I'm a big stickler for checklists. Yeah. I love the book by Atul Gawande, Checklist Manifesto. And it's hard for us to make checklists when we're still figuring out the systems. So I wish, even though we couldn't have done it, I wish we had those systems in place. And the, the scary part where we're at right now is those systems become codified that we don't rely only on those systems. Part of why it's good to change the menu all the time is to keep everyone on their toes. So it's not regret. I just wish that we were able to move a little bit faster because so much of managing right now is policing and like not even teaching the cooks, but like telling them they can't do this, they can do that. When I think if we have the right checks and balances in place, they're going to have the autonomy to make those decisions on their own. And that's what I want. So we can make things better instead of like fixing things. Your biggest mistake was not telling me to blow up the fries. Oh, because now people come in and ask for the fries because I went on House of Carbs and raved yeah. about the fries. That was also a mistake. That was also a mistake. Because <laughs> some nights you don't even have the fries and then people are like, where are the fries? Well, yeah, I remember one table that came in and they were, I'm going to just say it, they were fucking jerks. <laughs> they were fucking jerks. And I was like, man, I hope not all Bill Simmons rabid fans are jerks because they, this table, they were definitely jerks. And they were like, we want the fries. We want the fries. Bill Simmons likes the fries. We listen to the podcast. You gave it to Bill. We want them. And we want this, this, and this. And I'm like, whoa, they were giving my server a really hard time. And that's when I get like, yeah, you don't like not, that. not cool. Yeah. Be nice and, to the servers, America. And she was just simply doing her job. And I'm like, that's unacceptable. I told them right off the bat, I went to the table. I was like, how you're treating my server is unacceptable. First off, right? You yeah. know, you don't treat another person this way. She's not the cook. If you want to yell at someone, you can yell at me. Yeah. And the fact is she's doing her job. We don't have them available. That being said, because you guys are being jerks, and I'm pretty sure I call them jerks, I'm happy to make you those fries. And we can just like move past all this. Oh, wow. You rewarded their bad behavior. Yeah, because I wanted them to feel bad. I like that guilt treat. You <laughs> You know, maybe they'll never come back again, but I was just like, I get really protective when I feel like our team is being threatened by something else. I have another challenge for you. I think you have to make your version of ketchup to go with the fries. That's not the aioli. Well, no, it's we like do. It's called, sauce it's called some sauce. <laughs> well, they, they don't come with the fries. Well, because we're not doing them yet, but I don't want to. I want yeah, yeah, it's, it's We actually have it. We'll talk about that later. What else is coming down the road? Mm, I don't know. Honestly... <laughs> Besides the restaurant opening, it's been nuts because I was gone for two weeks for the Olympics. Um, I know. We didn't talk about how hard. I guess we can brush through that, but you launched this restaurant and then you basically left it. It was like having a baby and then leaving. Yeah. Not because like I in, wanted it. But you were in Korea for the Olympics. Yeah. You had to do press we could talk for about just the, the Olympics on another day. We have to do the, yeah, we have to do volume five because the other thing we have to talk about is the whole premise of reviews. Yeah, now the the review season's review happening. Review season's on. And we've been reviewed by- You've had uh, some great reviews, but up. there's a couple of big ones left. Yeah, there's a couple of big ones left. And LA Times is obviously the most significant in LA, but we've been really- Eater gave us a glowing review. LA Mag. I'm trying not to read all the Yelp reviews because it's like, I think we're getting penalized because the reviews have been very positive. So people expect like certain things. Yeah. And we really want everyone to leave happy. And it sucks when you read- people writing negative comments, but for the most part, everything's been positive. 
and we're listening to all the complaints and trying to get better. But the review process has been weird. One day we had like three critics in and I was like, what the fuck's going on? It was like a national one, a local one, and like a national magazine. I think I was there that night. You were there that night. I mean, the ads are. I mean, they're <laughs> twice and I was like, Bill, I can't talk to you. There's all the shit going on. Yeah, down. I could tell. You went um, into Brady Super Bowl mode. Yeah. That's when I'm like, oh man, this is all happening. And like getting requests from top 50 voters and shit like that. I'm like, man, like I don't want to go down this road. It's been a lot. And the and thing celebrity that I'm, requests too, because LA has a lot of celebrities who have never celebrity been to your restaurants requests, before. Yes. And um, we're trying not to accommodate them <laughs> so much. <laughs> Because, like, they're the worst. They're the worst. You know, like, why should they get so and so famous actor wants to come in at 8 30 on Friday night? And You're like, like, great. Too bad. We're booked. No. So we're trying very hard. I think it's very different for the people that are making the reservations to not accommodate people. We're trying to take care of the people that make reservations like everyone else. Like, we had an email account for people that wanted to have requests, but it, we had to cancel it. And I sent an email out to everyone that's affiliated with Momofuku that like, you cannot make a reservation unless you ask me. I'm really busy. Yeah, I'm actually like, yes, we have to make some special accommodations for people, but like it has to go by me until we come up with a better system. And then immediately everything stopped because people were bothering too much of our staff for reservation requests. And I could just see this spiraling out of control because not only people from my own company from New York or wherever were trying to get reservations for their friends, but all of many people in LA that traditionally get reservations through like back channels. And I saw this happening and made me really upset. And I just became like North Korea for like an hour. And I was like, nope, this is all over. I'm really proud of how I behaved. Every time somebody asked me to get them in, I was like, I can't. <laughs> They're booked for like two months. Can't do it. So it sucks because you want to accommodate everyone. But if you like make exceptions, then it becomes like too much. So um, the only two people who are allowed to just walk in are me and Greater Cho. <laughs> great, 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 Greater Cho just can wander in at any point of the day, no matter how busy it is. He's actually not been, he's only been in two times. Is that true? Yeah. You've been in easily oh, so more I'm than anyone else. I'm a supportive guy. Yes. I'm a good friend. Um, and I'm also hungry all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we got to get to this review process. And all right, uh, so volume five. Yeah, we'll try to wrap it up with that. We can do um, the review process, but also the ugly delicious and the fact that and the Olympics and the fact that you became, I don't know, recognizable. You're on the Olympics. A lot of people watch the Olympics. <clears throat> then you're on a Netflix show, and guess what? A lot of people have Netflix. <laughs> Your level of recognizability went much higher, which must have been weird. We'll save Very that weird. for volume five. That's it. Thanks for listening to volume four of the pre-opening diaries. Volume five will be coming up soon. We'll also have some new interviews with guests coming up as well. And if you like the show, please give us five stars on Apple podcasts. So Bill Simmons doesn't get mad at me. But before I leave, I wanted to try to start to give recommendations. And when I was in New York a couple weeks ago, I got food from Superiority Burger. And you may not know about it. It's in New York City by one of the greatest chefs, pastry chefs in America named Brooks Headley. And it's in the East Village. It's an unassuming fast food-like place, but I think it's serving some of the most exciting food. And it's all vegetarian or vegan, believe it or not. And it's not just burgers. I had one of the best things I've had to eat all year. 
and it was a bean soup. And I couldn't understand how much flavor was coaxed into it and why I recommend it. It's not like it's new. Everyone loves this place, but I couldn't believe how good it was. And I'm simply talking about it because Brooks is coming out with a cookbook and it's, I think, pre-order. It's releasing soon. And I think that if you're interested about making maximum flavor and a unique approach to creating dishes and really one of the most original minds out there, I think you should check out Superiority Burger's new cookbook. Check all those out and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much.